wonderful to be together this morning. I always look forward to the time we can sing some of these really good texts at Christmas. We always sing good texts, but just a really good reminder, and especially this Sunday, we sang some songs this morning of real anticipation. I can't see some of you over here, so I'm going to do this. So I like to look at you, see what's going on out here. But these songs of anticipation, these songs of longing and of desire is really what we're going to focus on this morning. So for the next two weeks, this Sunday and the following Sunday, we're going to take a little break from our journey through Ephesians, and we're going to focus on some Christmas texts. So this morning, my job and my privilege is to walk through the Old Testament And what we're going to do is that sometimes when we think about Christmas and we think about the coming of Jesus and us living in the time that we live, we kind of just take for granted that, yeah, Jesus came and this is what happened and we celebrate and it's wonderful and it is. But when we consider what was going on from the creation of the world for the next 4,000 whatever years to when Christ came, it was so magnificent and it was such a eternally significant event that Christ came. And so what I want to do this morning is to look all the way back. We're going to start in Genesis. And we're going to take what's called an Old Testament overview. Now, if you've been to Bible school or Sunday school class, you know that an Old Testament overview can last for months. But we all have lunch to get to, and so we're going to try to do it in 30 minutes today. But we sing some of these lyrics of these songs. Think about this. Uh, O holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The word pining means to long for, to have desire. So we sing this song that says the world is lying there waiting for something. It's waiting for someone to come. Or the song that we sang earlier this morning, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. The end of that verse, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. There's a sense of anticipation when we read the Old Testament. And we see that there was a promise made in Genesis. And we wait and we wait and we wait for the fulfillment of that promise. Israel thought that the coming Messiah, this leader, this promised one, would be primarily a political leader. Someone who would free them from oppression, free them from slavery, in bondage, but that wasn't the plan of God at that time. Jesus didn't come in flash and in pomp and ceremony. He wasn't born into a palace. As David's going to talk about next week, he was born into very humble circumstances. A very unlikely king. But that's for next week. So this morning, I want to show you that there's this sense of anticipation in the Old Testament so that when we get to Christmas, when you celebrate with your family this week, when we come together again next Sunday, that it really lands on us with weight, the significance of the coming of the Messiah. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning, and then we're going to start working through this. Father in heaven, The coming of your son, Jesus, into the world is the most significant event in the history of the universe. Without the coming of Jesus, we have no redemption from our sin. We have no hope of salvation. We have no promise 
of your spirit dwelling with us. But because of him, we have all of these things in Christ. But before we get to this point, Lord, where we celebrate the coming, we want to see that there really was a need. There was a longing for this redemption. So, Father, this morning, as we take an overview of the Old Testament, of your word to us, I pray that we would come to understand that not only Jesus came and he came in fulfillment of all these prophecies, but he is the only answer. There's no other government, there's no other leader, there's no other ruler who could do what Jesus did. So Father, raise our affections for Christ this morning. And as we see the failure of the old systems, help us to appreciate and treasure all the more what your son did. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at some key texts from the Old Testament. And I mean, there are so many. There are so many places we could go. So I'm just going to kind of take the high points this morning. We're going to just do an overview of this. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. This is where we're going to begin for this morning. We're going to look at several different texts, so if you don't have time to look them up, I'd encourage you just to write them down in your bulletin. When you have time, go back and look through these in more detail. But here's what's going on in Genesis 3. God has created the world. He created everything good. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Satan enters and tempts Eve and Adam, and they fall into sin. And this is where we pick it up. In verse 14, God is handing down the punishment, the consequence for the sin. And not only do Adam and Eve receive these consequences, these punishments for what they did, Satan also is the recipient of this. So follow along in verse 14, Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That means strife, conflict. They're not getting along, they are at odds. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, it's referring to her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This text is what theologians for centuries have called the proto-evangelium. Two words, protos meaning first, it's where we get our word prototype, it's the first kind, and evangelion meaning good news or gospel. This was the first gospel. The first telling in the Bible that there is somebody coming in the line of the humans, of Eve's offspring, who would finally and decisively destroy the enemy. Sin had entered the world. And because of that, there is now a need for a savior, someone who would reverse the curse, so to speak. People sometimes ask, why did, why did Jesus have to come as a man? I mean, God is all-powerful. Why didn't he just supernaturally take care of sin, deal with it? Why the coming of his son? Philippians 2 said, Jesus took on human form. He humbled himself and came that way. Why did that happen? 
Well, one of the reasons is because it was prophesied, it was foretold here, that the Savior, the coming one, was offspring of the woman. He had to come as a man. And now the big question, as we pick up from here and we go through the Old Testament, as the narrative was being lived out in the nation of Israel, here's the question, who's the offspring? Who's the one? And as we read through the story of the Old Testament and through the truth of God's word, there are many candidates that come up and you go, oh, I wonder if this is the one. I wonder if this is the one who will fulfill this promise. This is the leader, this is the king, this is the ruler. So what I want to do this morning is look at a few of these candidates. We have this promise in Genesis 3. There's coming one. There's coming someone who's going to decisively destroy the enemies of God's people. Who's it going to be? So let's look at a few examples. First, one that comes to mind for me is Moses. The nation of Israel has been formed. God makes promises to Abraham. You remember the story, Genesis 12, that Abraham's descendants would be as the sands of the sea and that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Pretty significant promise to make to someone who doesn't even have children at the time. And then we move on and it's not only Abraham, but it's Isaac and Jacob the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, Jacob then has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can read through that in the second half of the book of Genesis, chapter 13, all the way through the end. But Israel falls into captivity in Egypt. And the promises that God had made seemed to be really dim. How is this going to work? How are we going to be set free? How are we going to gain this liberation as a nation? Exodus chapter 2. This is what is recorded for us. And again, if you don't have time to turn here, just listen and look these up later. During those days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, And with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So what happens? God raises up a leader. God raises up Moses to deliver the people and lead them out of Egypt. Now if you were an Israelite at that time, tradition is huge. You get taught all of the history of your nation. And so you would have been taught that long ago in the Garden of Eden, when they first started, there was a promise made. The first gospel The proto-evangelium, that one day there is coming a leader, someone who would deliver us, crush the head of the enemy. So you see Moses rise the way that he does and lead the people, and you go, boy, I wonder if he's it. Is this the one? Is this the promised one? But when we keep reading, we see that Moses blew it. He had a quick fuse. He, He kills a guard in Egypt, over a dispute between a couple of Israelite guys. He loses his temper time and time again as he's leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. He disobeys God's commands. He strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. He does all of these things. And because of that, God does not allow him to see the consummation of what he's doing. He doesn't allow him to enter into the promised land. Moses never entered the promised land. And don't get me wrong, he was a wonderful leader. He led the people of Israel. He demonstrated faith in God. He did all the things. But he was not the promised one. So there still exists 
in Israel, this anticipation. When is he coming? When will we see this happen? So we move on into the time of the judges. Israel had gotten into the promised land. Moses led them up that far and then passed the mantle of leadership on to Joshua. They take the city of Jericho. They move in. They start settling. They start farming. They start establishing their cities. But one of the problems was that the nations around them did not believe in Yahweh. They did not believe in God. And they influenced the nation of Israel. They led them astray. And not only that, but they were at war oftentimes. They were attacking the Midianites and the Philistines and these nations were just aggressive towards God's people. They needed help. They needed someone to step in. So the judges are raised up by God to rule over disputes of the people, to establish a sort of militia, an army thing, to protect the nation of Israel as they dwell here. And for about 330 years, the judges rule in Israel. And some really good ones, and some not so good ones. People like Samson, Gideon, Jephthah. I mean, the book of Judges in the Old Testament is a fantastic read. Some of the most amazing things are in the book of Judges. And they did really great things for God's people, but you know what? None of the judges were able to finally and decisively destroy the enemies of God's people. They were still waiting. There was still this sense of anticipation, which brings us to the time of the kings in the history of Israel. Samuel was the last judge that Israel had. And the people of Israel are looking around. They've had judge here and there. Here a judge, there a judge. Never mind. But they had these judges, and none of them could really do it. They weren't the promised one. And so Israel looks around, and 1 Samuel chapter 8 gives us the account of how the people come to Samuel and they say, we're not happy with the way things are. We need something else. So listen to what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the, this is verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, Give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as being king over them. Israel wanted a king so they could be like everybody else. They looked around and they said, Well, look at that nation. They seem to be doing all right. They have someone to lead them. They have a king. Give us a king. We want a king. And God tells Samuel... Do what they say, but tell them this is what's going to happen. Here's the consequence of having a king. He's going to take your best men and put them into battle, into combat. He's going to take your servants for his own use. He's going to tax you and do all of these things to keep the kingdom going. So Samuel tells the people. This is what they say back in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so begins the line of kings in Israel. Now this is promising because a king has the authority and the power to make things happen. And so the people are going, maybe this will be it. Maybe one of the kings will come and finally fulfill this 
first gospel promise that was made to our fathers. And there's some good kings, right? Think about David. The first public thing that we see David do in the nation of Israel is kill the greatest enemy that they had at the time. Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. So now they look at David, and then he gets crowned king. So he has not only the ability, they've seen him exercise these things, and now he's in the position where he is king. And they go, this has got to be it. David's the one. But what do we know about David? He failed. He failed big time. He lied, stole, he murdered, he committed adultery, he dealt falsely with the people around him wasn't David. The hope of David being the one to fulfill the promise was broken. Now because of David's sin and because of his son's sin, the nation of Israel is divided now into two kingdoms. It's not a united kingdom. It's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. And we know that a nation that's divided, that can't unite on the main things, is not going to last. So what happens? God sends judgment on the nation of Israel by allowing the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persian Empire, they all attack at various times and take the people of Israel into captivity. God brings judgment on them by allowing them to be taken captive once again and to be led into slavery. But God's punishment is not without grace and a promise of hope because this is where we see the time of the prophets. And in the prophets, when we read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the way through the minor prophets, we see probably the most clear foretelling of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. And so in the midst of captivity, in the midst of slavery and oppression, there comes a message of hope. There comes a message of anticipation. He's coming. The Savior is coming. And he'll be the one to carry the load, to free you, to destroy the enemies. So what I want to do this now for the rest of our time is to look at three, what I think to be pretty clear prophecies, clear foretellings of the Messiah. And then we'll make some application and wrap it up. So first of all, I want you to turn to Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. David is writing and he's telling us this is what's considered a messianic psalm, meaning it is about the Messiah about the one to come. So when we read this, we can read, where is Jesus? Where do we see him in this? So follow along, if you would, Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, this is God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage the ends of the earth, your possession. The psalmist, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells of a time when God will set his king on the throne. This is not going to be a king like they know kings. 
This will not be a king that fails, who dies, who lets them into slavery. His anointed one. We read also that not only will this be king be chosen by God, it will be God's son. Verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Speaking of this king, today I have begotten you. We've seen the failure of all the other forms of government, right? The people unable to handle themselves, to govern themselves, and so God raises up judges. The judges fail. They're sinful. They're human. So they want a king. So God allows them to have a king. We see the line of kings starting all the way from Saul, David, Solomon, all the way up through Hezekiah, and all the kings. What happens? Every one of them fail. Every one of them die. There's no everlasting king. So where's the hope? The hope is in the promise of a coming king. God, in his wisdom and in his mercy, declares that one day there will be a king who is not only good and just and powerful, but this king will be the son of God. Next, if you turn to the book of Micah, or follow along as I read, this is a common Christmas text that we read. Micah chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 2 and 4. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, for God, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. A ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient times. What do we just see in Ephesians chapter 1? That Jesus Christ is everlasting. From before the foundation of the world, he existed with God the Father. He is the king from old, from everlasting, who is coming. The word of the Lord through the prophet Micah said that there's coming a ruler from Bethlehem, which we know that's where Jesus was born, who will not only rule with the justice that we saw in Psalm 2, but he will care for his people. We see that when it talks about he will shepherd his people. Whenever you see the word shepherd used as a verb, he will shepherd, we should understand that to be care. He tends his sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And think about what a comfort this message would have been to the people. Let, what, if, what if you were a child born into captivity in the nation of Israel? <clears throat> That's all you knew. You don't even remember the time when you were free. You just know that you're under oppression. You're under slavery. You can't do what you want. You have to follow these oppressive rules. Treated harshly. Worked hard. And to hear <clears throat> that there is coming a king who will care for you who will shepherd you, who will not only provide the structure and the justice that you need, but Psalm 103, as a father pities his children, so the Lord has compassion on all those who fear him. That's the kind of king that's coming. So you can see that there's this anticipation. The people are devastated by their captivity, and yet in that comes this hope that there is one coming who will shepherd 
his people. Now, what if you hear this good news as a person living in Israel or in captivity? The foretelling of a great king, and you say, well, this is great, but, I mean, what's going to happen? Are we going to have a great king for 20 years, 30 years, then he dies, then what? I think the text that Josh read this morning from Isaiah helps to answer that. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The implications of these verses are stunning. But what is this passage telling us or telling the people about the king? Let's just look at these phrases real quickly, one at a time. First, for us a child is born. And to us a son is given. This might be really obvious, but I'm going to say it anyways. A child is born means that this king is of human descent. Just like the promise made in the garden, the offspring of Eve, this child is a human child. To us a son is born means that the child will be a man, a male in the line of kings. So this is helping them understand who this will be. The government shall be upon his shoulders. We know that the nation of Israel was in captivity. And we know that there was this yoke of slavery. You know what a yoke is. You put it on oxen and they bear the load and they do the work. This was on the people's shoulders. They had been enslaved. But the king who was coming would take that yoke, that responsibility, and put it on his shoulders. And no longer would the people be crushed under the weight of that oppression. But the government, the leadership, the responsibility would be on him. The government would be on his shoulders. Next we see four ways in which the king will relate to his people. He will be a wonderful counselor, meaning that the wisdom he possesses and the ability to put that wisdom and knowledge into practice will serve the people. In contrast to the kings of Israel who made foolish decisions, not God-honoring decisions, this king will have the wisdom of God and be able to use it for the good of his people. He will be a wonderful counselor. Next, mighty God. This speaks, I think, to the ability and the right of this king to govern the people. He will be, as Psalm 2 said, the son of God, meaning God. Everlasting Father. This answers the question that we asked earlier. Is this king going to come and go like every other king? No. No, the kingdom of Christ will last forever. Everlasting means it will never end. And the father part, just as we said earlier with the shepherding, he will care for his people. The Prince of Peace speaks to the nature of his rule. Think about even if a short slice of Israel's history, there was very few times when you could take an extended period of peace. There was always some kind of conflict. If it wasn't conflict with other nations, it was conflict between dynasty or between family or between rulers or governors or whatever. There was always some kind of conflict going on. 
Not with this king. This king will usher in a time of peace that Israel had never known before. This is the last thing we'll focus on from this passage. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The king that was promised would not be a temporary king. He would not rule for a time and then die. Or rule for a time and be overthrown. The promised king, the one that they were waiting for and longing for, would be an everlasting king. This is what we read about the kingdom of God in Revelation 11. In verse 15, And there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the promise that was made in the Old Testament. That the king coming, Psalm 2, would rule with justice. That Micah tells us that he will shepherd his people. He'll be compassionate and gentle. And then Isaiah lays out all of these things that this king will be. And it will be an everlasting kingdom. So feel that with me. Feel the anticipation in the Old Testament for the coming of a Messiah, a Savior, who would finally do what nobody else had ever done and no one else could do. So this week, as we gather and we celebrate the coming of Jesus, think about this. Think about what happened when Christ came. He fulfilled all of these promises, all of this prophecy, all of this longing was fulfilled in Jesus. So now two things before we come to the table together. Why would we spend a whole morning looking at this? There's two things we can pull out of this. As we look at the Old Testament, as we read from Genesis and the promise, and we see all the way through Israel's history up until the point of Jesus, one of the things that I want us to take away is that Jesus is greater. If you don't believe me, read the book of Hebrews. Jesus is a greater Moses. He is a greater priest. He is a greater judge. He is a greater king. He is a greater prophet. None of the earthly kings, priests, prophets, or judges could do what needed to be done. Only Jesus. And I want us to see that Jesus is greater. Secondly, we see by looking at this that God's timing is perfect. Why didn't it happen earlier? Why did God let the nation of Israel go for 4,000 some odd years? Here's the promise. Here's the promise. Here's the promise. Why not just fulfill it? Because God's timing is perfect. You remember what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4 when he says, when the fullness of time had come, when the time was right, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's us. That we might receive the blessing that was made to Abraham. Faith in Jesus. The time was right. Jesus was not late. God didn't get distracted and go, rats, we've got to get that. Uh, go, go now. This was absolutely according to God's plan. I don't know what you're waiting for. We're all waiting for something. 
waiting for a relationship to heal. Or you're waiting for a hurt to heal. Or you're waiting for the next event, the next circumstance, whatever it is. God hasn't forgotten you. He's not left you and turned his back on you. His timing is perfect. We see that in this. We see that when the fullness of time had come, Christ came. So whatever you are struggling with, whatever you are waiting for, whatever you feel like you need but you just don't have it yet, God hasn't forgotten you. He's not left you. His timing is perfect and when he is ready, you'll see him work in ways that you have never seen before. Jesus is greater and God's timing is perfect. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Lord, what an encouragement to look at your word, to look at the entire Old Testament and see that you act in such perfection. That when the time was right, Lord, everything was in place. Down to the details of Joseph having to go to a certain place to be taxed by the Roman government. All of these things you put into place so that the promise that was made in Genesis 3, that there was coming one, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of our enemy, Lord, at the right time that happened. And Christ came. Lord, this season, as we celebrate and we remember and we praise you, I pray that we would understand this, that you do all things well. You did not make a mistake in Christ's coming. You did not delay and you did not come too soon. It was absolutely perfect. And I pray that this would build our faith. Lord, for those who are waiting, who are waiting with anticipation for you to act for you to answer prayer, for you to move in their life. God, I pray that you would comfort them, that this would be an encouragement to know that you have not forsaken us, but that in your timing, you do the right things. Give us patience as we wait. God, and this week as we celebrate, I pray that we would keep Christ at the center of what we do. He is our only hope. He is our joy and our peace. Father, help us to praise you for your good work. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.